So, 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 10. Look at verse 9. Let's just read the two verses here. God's love was, re- was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want to talk about, talk about these pa- this passage under three headings today. We're going to talk about the reality of God's love. We're going to talk about the wonder of God's love. And we're going to talk about the accomplishment of God's love. So first of all, the reality of God's love. The reality of God's love. Number one under that, God's disposition to us is one of love. God's disposition towards you is one of love. Verse 9 says that God's love was revealed among us. Verse 10 says that love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. God's position to you is one of love. His his fundamental disposition isn't one of hatred or disgust. When your name comes up in heaven, he doesn't wrinkle up his nose. He doesn't breathe an exasperated sigh. And by the way, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your name comes up a lot in heaven. Your name comes up a lot in heaven. And I'm not just saying this as an ego-tripping human being. I'm saying this on the authority of the word of God. Because the Bible teaches that Jesus is constantly interceding to the Father for you on your behalf. And we looked at that back in April. Uh, you can look, up, look it up in verses uh, Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.34. God doesn't look at you in hatred or disgust, nor, does, nor, does he con- nor is his disposition towards you one of apathy or an indifference. God's disposition towards you is not of indifference. He's not apathetic with regards to you. He's not like, yeah, I I know who that person is. So what? That's not God's attitude towards you. God is a God of love. Verse 8 says, we didn't read verse 8. It's right before this passage. But verse 8 says, God is love. A little bit later, verse 16 repeats that. God is love. His fundamental disposition toward us, towards you, is one of love. That is why he sent his son. That love for you is manifested in the giving of his son for you. Verse 10 says he loved us and sent his son. God loves you. God loves you. Now, number two, it's an active demonstrative love. It's an active demonstrative love. It's not a reserved love. It's not a reticent love. It's not a silent love. God's not like the boy in the background who secretly loves the girl but never tells her. A woman complained to her husband that he never told her that he loved her. And he responded, look, I told you 30 years ago at the altar that I loved you. If that ever changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) God's not that way. God's not that way. God's love is active. It's demonstrative. God reveals his love to us, verse 9. He revealed it by sending his own son into the world for us. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners christ died for us you don't have to grab a flower and start pulling off petals to figure out whether god loves you or not he loves me he loves me not he loves me that's not we, we don't need that the bible is very clear the cross is very clear that god loves you god loves you he's made it clear at the cross by sending his own son for you so know this that god not only loves you he actively loves you God actively loves you. 
And then God's love is supreme. God's love is supreme. Verse 10 says, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. You want to know what love is? You, you want to know what love is? You look at God's love. Don't look at, don't look at our love for God. Look at God's love. Don't look at human love at all. God's love is the definition of love. It's the gold standard of love. It's supreme above all loves. We do not match God in terms of purity of love. Our love is mixed. Our love for others is mixed with impure motives, with self-interest. But God's love is undiluted. It's genuine. No sinful contaminants. We do not match God in purity of love, nor can we match God in terms of the strength of love. We are limited. We are finite. We are weak. Our love is a trickle. God's love is a mighty river. You know, I have, I have five kids, and I love them all. I love all five of my kids. But God's love for them is way stronger than mine because I'm just a limited human being, but God is infinite and powerful and mighty. We do not match God's love. We cannot match it. You want to know what love is? Don't look at human love. Look at God's love for us. Look at what he did for us. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atonement for our sins. His love for you is supreme among all others who have loved or who love you now. No one loves you as much as God does right now. God loves you more than anyone else does. He loves you more than anyone else can. That's the reality of God's love. God's love is real. He loves you. He has supremely demonstrated it in the gift of his son Jesus for you. So some of you need to get past the first threshold even of just knowing the reality of God's love. The fact that God does love you. That that is his fundamental disposition towards you. And now we'll move on and talk about the wonder of God's love. The wonder of God's love. God's love is a wonder because of who we are and because of the great links that he has gone to for us. First of all, God's love is a wonder because of who we are. Because of who we are. Does God love us because we are so eminently worthy of his love? Does he love us or does he love us in spite of who we are? What do you think? It's in spite of who we are. Let me just answer that. It's in spite of who we are. Does he, does he love us because we are so lovable or does he love us despite the fact that we are so unlovable? The Bible answers that question with a resounding, unanimous answer. God's lo- God loves us despite the fact that we are so unlovable. He loves us in spite of the fact that we have done nothing to earn or attract his love. In fact, quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. So let me just pick out of these two couple verses here a few inferences about you and me in these two verses. The first inference is, is, is that we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead. Verse 9 says that God sent his son into the world so that we might live. He sent his son into the world so that we might live. This implies that we are dead. We need the son so that we can live. But before the son comes, we were dead. The Bible is clear that before Christ and apart from Christ, we were spiritually dead. Look at Ephesians 2.1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What is this talking about? It's talking about spiritual death. Our bodies were alive. Our spirits were dead, completely unaffected by God, completely dead towards God. We were unresponsive to him. Our bodies alive, our spirits dead. Go on to verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Wait there a moment. It says not that we loved God. 
Here's the second inference, inference number two. We didn't love God. We didn't love God. So God is loving us in spite of the fact that we are spiritually dead. He's loving us in spite of the fact that we didn't love him. We were opposed to him. We were his enemies. In our natural selves, we didn't naturally seek after God. Colossians 1.21 says that once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Before you knew Christ, before you came to Christ, you were enemies to God. You were an enemy to God in your mind. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh, the, the natural person apart from Christ is hostile to God, for that person does not submit to God's law. Indeed, he cannot. Our natural sinful mindset was against God. We didn't want God telling us what to do. We didn't see him as directing us for our own good. We saw him differently than that. We saw him as the enemy. We saw him as trying to control our lives. We saw him as trying to repress us, as trying to suppress us, as trying to um, enslave us and force us into a life that was miserable and had lousy outcomes. That's how we saw God. And so in our natural selves, we, we rebel against God and we ignore him. Love God? We didn't love God. We were opposed to him. We resisted him, rebelled against him, rebelled even against the idea of him. So you see how lovable we are that God loved us, right? Spiritually dead, resisting him. We could go further in verse 10. Verse 10, it says, he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. There's that phrase, our sins. So inference number three about us before Christ, before God, is that we were sinners. We were sinners. According to the Bible, we wallowed in the stuff. Think of a pig wallowing in the mud. Only we love sin more than the pig loves mud. And sin, what's the one thing that that revolts God? It is repulsive to him. It's sin. And that's the stuff we revel in. That's the stuff we wallow in. And yet, God loves us. Who are we? We are dead. We are angered by it. And we we are angered by the idea of God. We're resisting God. We're fully immersed in the one thing God hates, sin. God's love is a wonder because of whom he loves, and that is us. That is you and me. It's good to love people. You know, it's good to love people who love you. You love people who love you, but it's not not super impressive. That's what everybody does. People love those who love them. But we take notice of people who love those and actively love those who don't love them back. We take notice of people when they love people who hate them. When they love people who hurt them and seek to wrong them. We take notice of people when they love people who slander them and try to tarnish their reputation. That's an impressive kind of love. And that's the kind of God love that God has. The wonder of God's love is that he loves you and me. But there's a second aspect to the wonder of God's love, and that's this. That God's love is a wonder because of what he has done. It's not that. It's that. God's love is a wonder because of what he has done. Not only whom he loves, but the extent, the lengths that he has gone to, to show his love to those whom he loves. And what has he done? Well, these verses are centered around it. It's the big news. He sent his son. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the wonder of his love. God sent his son for us. That's how much God loves us. He sent his son for us. Parents, think about how much you love your kids. All right? Think about how much you love your children. And then multiply that by infinity, okay? You got that number? And then multiply it by infinity, and that's how much God the Father loves God the Son. 
That's how much he loves God the Son. And he sent that Son into the world for us because of his love for us. Even us who have resisted him, rebelled against him, who were um, spiritually dead, who were wallowing in our sins and transgressions. Verse 9 says, God sent his one and only son into the world. Think of that. Think about the world at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was born. All right. Think, think of the, the Roman oppression. Now think of the violence. Think of the, the religions at that time. So many false religions. The worship of the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes and so forth. The worship of the Roman gods. The worship of Roman emperors. Think of all the hypocrisy among the Jewish leaders the Pharisees and the Sadducees and so forth. Think of the bitter hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans at that time. We read about that in the New Testament. Think about the time when Jesus was born shortly after that, where there's this bloodbath in Bethlehem as a result of Jesus' presence. Think about his own family, how his own family had to flee into Egypt after he was born. Think about as he uh, was ministering, the, the opposition that he experienced for the religious leaders to his teaching. Think about all the arguments that his disciples had amongst themselves. You know, he's trying to he's trying to establish his he's trying to establish the kingdom on the backs of these twelve disciples who can't seem to uh, get it. And his own brothers, we even read of his own brothers who were born to Mary and Joseph, didn't believe in him. It's a world filled, filled with sin, with people murdering and hating and raping and being adulterous and being self-serving and greedy and deceitful and idolatrous. And this is the world that God sent his beloved son into. You know, we're somewhat immune to sin. Uh, we live in it all the time, so we don't, uh, it doesn't maybe bother us as much as it should. We don't notice the stench, if you will. We're used to the world. Imagine the son of God coming here. And the one thing he can't stand is sin. He can't stand sin. He hates sin. And he's sent into this world. Tony Evans puts it this way. He says, try to imagine having to live 33 years in a house that has never been cleaned. The house has a horrible filth on the carpets, a stench in every room, and you're stuck there for 33 years. So we approach a little bit the idea of what Christ endured when he came here. And please, don't anyone come up to me after the service and say, well, that's my house. (laughs) God sent his son into the world to do what? Not only did he send him into the world, but he also sent him into the world to become human. To be human like us. To be human human like who? To be human like the people who are spiritually dead, who are wallowing in their sin. To be just like those ones who are rebelling against the Heavenly Father. The divine son of God took on human nature at the point of conception within the womb of a woman. And then the divine son of God was carried in the womb of this woman, Mary, for nine months and then was born an infant, a baby. Jesus came in the likeness of this whole race of men and women who had to a person repeatedly sinned against God. God sent him to be like us, but even more than that as Pastor Ryan was pointing out, to die for us. He sent him to die for us. Verse 10 says, He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
He sent him to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to take the heat for all our rebellion, to pay the price for our sins. He sent him to be the, into the world to be born one of us and then to die for us. We, uh, he never needed to experience death. He never sinned, but he did. He experienced that death in a most horrific way. Why? And that's because God loves you. It's because God loves you. Look at the links God's love has gone for us. And that's the wonder of God's love. That's the wonder of Christmas. All right. Then the third heading is this, the accomplishment of God's love. What has God's love accomplished? What did this, what it is sending his son into the world accomplish for us? And, you know, we could go on and on about this. That's what the whole Bible is about. But we're just going to mention two accomplishments that are hinted at in these two verses. Let's look at the end of verse 10 first, where it says that God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because Jesus has atoned for your sins and my sins, we have forgiveness. We have forgiveness of all our sins. Forgiveness of all our sins. All of our sins are paid for. All of them are forgiven. And uh, that's, that's quite a tally. That's quite a list. All of our sins. Even just one person, that's quite a tally. Even just this person right here. All of my sins. That, that's a long list. I've been alive for 45 years. Okay, a little bit longer than that. <laughs> I've been alive for 53 years and counting. That's a lot of sins. All of them paid for in Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, God does not hold any of your sins against you. He doesn't hold any of them against you. You say, wait a minute, you know, I, I thought God loved us, so he's just going to forgive us anyway. I mean, why does the son have to come and die? Christ didn't need to come and do that. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. A judge may love his son who happens to be a criminal. He, a judge may love his criminal son very much, but if he's a good judge, a just judge, he's going to send his son to do the time. The crime has to be paid for. Our crime, if you will, our sins had to be paid for. The difference came in is that we didn't have to do it. He sent his own son, not the criminal son. This is the opposite of the illustration. He sent his own son who was sinless and perfect in order to die for your sins and to die for my sins so that he could forgive us. The sins had to be paid for in order that they could be forgiven. And he sent his son to do that. And now on the basis of his son's payment, he forgives us. Look at this verse. Psalm 103, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Think of that one sin that no one else knows about. That one sin that, that you committed and that you tell no one about because you're ashamed of it or you're, you're afraid of what the consequences will be if you let others know what you have done. And some of you may be thinking, I, I can think of more than one. Regardless, if you have received the gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, that sin or those 15 sins or those 20 sins, those sins that are so horrible that you can't even bring yourself to mention to anyone else, those are forgiven. God does not hold those sins against you. 
Look at what, look at what David confessed in Psalm 51. David said, save me. He's praying this to the Lord. He says, save me from the guilt of what? Bloodshed. Murder. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. David is talking about his part in the murder of Uriah. This is in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11. Uriah was a good man, and David arranged for him to be killed, and he was killed. David committed murder. Sometime later then, he confessed it to the Lord. And note those words, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. He comes to the Lord asking him for salvation from that bloodshed. He's asking for forgiveness. He acknowledges that he has committed the deed. And what does he call God there? He says, God of my salvation. David knows that God will forgive him, even a premeditated murder. Ephesians 1, 7 says, we have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. God loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you so that you may be forgiven of all your sins. Now look at the end of verse 9, where it says that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Another accomplishment of God's great love to us is this, life. It's life. You were dead in sin. We talked about that. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in sin. You were physically alive, but spiritually dead. But now, if you know Christ, you are also spiritually alive. As as verse 9 puts it, you live through him. Spiritually, you have been raised from the dead. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, with Christ. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, we were dead. We've been made alive in Christ. What is this life through Christ? It's getting stronger. We are getting stronger as believers. You are on the rise. Now, I understand that I'm not talking about here our physical strength at this moment, right? We're talking about spiritual strength, spiritual life, spiritual vitality. Um. Of course, spiritual, physical strength will come in the end with the resurrection and so forth. But life through Christ is spiritual vitality. Look at some of the, I want to show you some promises here and pictures of your spiritual vitality in Jesus Christ. Psalm 84 says they go from strength to strength. Now you may feel like, I feel like I'm going from weakness to weakness. I'm getting weaker and weaker. But spiritually speaking, in Christ, if you are in Christ, Going from strength to strength. Psalm 92 says the righteous thrive like a palm tree and grow like a cedar tree in Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord, they thrive in the courts of our God. So picture this thriving, if you will. If you are in Christ, you are growing stronger as you walk with him. Proverbs 4.18, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Daniel 12, those who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. If you are in Christ, these verses are talking about you. They're talking about future glory for you. 
We could go on. Romans 5.17. You can look that up later. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4.16 and 17. Therefore, we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed. In other words, we're getting weaker. We're getting physically weaker um, as we get older and so forth. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person, our spirit, our soul is being renewed day by day for our light. Momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. You know, last year, well, in the last couple of years, we've had a number of, we've said goodbye to a number of people. Um, half a dozen or more um, saints among us, uh, believers among us who were older and disease or whatever, for whatever reason, they passed away. And then the last days of their life, they were, from the outside, pretty weak. You know, their bodies were failing. In some cases, you know, the, minds were, the mind wasn't quite there and so forth. That was the physical reality. The spiritual reality, all of these people that I'm thinking of were believers in Jesus Christ and loved the Lord. The spiritual reality is that even though their bodies were weakening, their souls were getting stronger and stronger and being renewed by constantly feeding on the Lord, by constantly abiding in Christ. As a believer, you are on the rise. You are going from strength to strength. As you abide in Christ, his life is energizing your soul and your spirit. And the Holy Spirit is transforming you. You are gaining spiritual vitality. Now, don't, don't hear this in some sort of New Age way, as if somehow all of these inner resources are being unlocked in us and we are being actualized as persons. The reality is you have no inner resources. You don't have any inner resources. But as we are in contact with Christ, the life of Christ, as we abide in Christ, it's the life of Christ in us that is strengthening us in him. You are on your way to perfection and glory because of Christ. The Bible is very clear about that. You are on your way to spiritual perfection. You are on your way to physical perfection, not in this life, but in the next life. This body decays, but eventually the resurrection body will receive resurrection bodies to match the strength of our soul that has been given to us in Christ. You are on your way to moral perfection. And when I say you're on your way to perfection in all those areas, don't think of like it's an endless journey. There is a completion point when you will reach that perfection, when you will reach that glorification, according to Scripture. Being confident, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. The day of Christ Jesus, it will be completed at some point. Sin has a deadline. Evil has a deadline. Sickness and suffering have a deadline. Death has a deadline. There will be a day when all those things will no longer exist. Can you imagine living at a time when there will be no sin or disease or death or decay or pain? We can't. I mean, well, you can't. I guess you can imagine it. But, I mean, that's, that's, our, that's the world we live in right now. But those things are going to come to an end. But you, because Jesus died for you, you're going to rocket past that deadline that they all have. Sin and death will gasp out their final breath, but you will just be blossoming into the fullness of life that will be yours for eternity. That's the accomplishment of God's love for you. Forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. 
Well, we've looked at the reality of God's love, the wonder of God's love, and we've looked at the accomplishment of God's love. But I need to tell you that the benefits of God's love is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Well, it is for everyone, but not everyone experiences it. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to trust in Christ. You have to walk with Christ. You have to follow him. He's provided forgiveness and salvation for you, but you've got to be in Christ. The wonderful, priceless gift of eternal life is available to you in Christ, but it is in Christ. And you have to go to him. During the World Series, uh, the Taco Bell did its thing where um, it does it every year, you know, steal a base, steal a taco. So the first time a base was stolen during the World Series, then America gets a free taco. I mean, you know, not one taco for each for us to share, but one taco for each person. So um, so that happened this year. You know, there was a base stolen in the first in the first game of the World Series and free tacos were available. Um, it was for everybody, but you know what? I didn't benefit from that. I didn't get my free taco because I guess I had to go to the store in order to get the taco. So I didn't get my free taco. You know what? I'm not too sad about that. It's not a big deal. I like Taco Bell, but, but there's no way, there's no way I'm going to miss out on the gift of salvation. There's no way I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go to Christ for salvation. There's, not go, there's no way I'm going to miss out on forgiveness for all my sins or on eternal life. So I have gone to Jesus in faith, and I cling to him. And I hope that's what everyone in this room is doing as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your incredible love for us. Um, we don't deserve it, um, and that's what makes it such a wonder. Um, and it is my prayer that everyone here, Father, would would know your love and not just know about it, but would feel it and know it because they're all walking with you because they're, they have all put their faith and trust in you. Father, we want your, we want the love of Christ to be known um, even further in our community. We want the love of Christ to be known by everyone in our families, by everyone at work. We want the love of Christ to be known in our neighborhoods and across the country and around the world that people might respond and believe. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would send uh, more workers, more witnesses into your harvest field um, so that more people would know of the love that you have for them in Jesus Christ. And may we also be witnesses sharing with others about the love of Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.